Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Evan Tyndall from Byream Capital. We're going to talk value investing, poker, MIT coming up right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Byream is an interesting name. What, why is it called yeah. Byream? So Byream is an, an ancient Greek warship that is uh, agile enough to do damage, but sturdy enough to, uh, you know, last in, in troubled waters. So, you know, we thought it was a, an apt name and all the, uh, all the Greek gods were taken. But, um, and then the other thing is that me and my partner, my business partner are two people and there's two, two sets of oars, which distinguishes it from a trireme. So we thought it, we thought it fit, you know. <laughs> And so you, it's a wealth management firm, but you run uh, hedge fund-like strategies and you're responsible for uh, the right. fundamental value strategy, which is what we're talking about today. Right. Yeah. Uh, my, yeah. My title is chief investment officer, which you know doesn't mean much when there's only two people. <laughs> someone had to be CIO and someone had to be CEO. Um, so I decided to take CIO, but yeah, I spent, I spent all my time basically on uh, the fundamental value strategy, which is sort of like a bottom up stock picking strategy. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about that. How, how, sure. what, are you, what are you looking for when, you, when you're sort of hunting? How do, you, how do you characterize the style? Yeah, so we, or I, I guess, uh, basically think that mispricings in the market are caused by mistakes that people make. So I used to be a professional poker player, which we can get into at some point. Um, but it, I see kind of investing as, as essentially like a game like poker. And uh, I know you, you play chess as well, right? And chess is the same way where the way, the way to win at any of these games is you have to see the mistake the other player's making and you have to punish it, right? And so we think that the only way to outperform the market is by punishing the mistakes of other investors. And so we try to look for those mistakes in, in, in the market. And we think they sort of fall into common themes that are related to cognitive biases. So if you're familiar with like Kahneman and Tversky, uh, they categorize this long list of, of cognitive biases that are basically glitches in the way human beings think that are, you know, there because we we uh, evolved to not get eaten by tigers rather right. than uh, you know plan for the long term. So you know we're kind of we're we're kind of geared to uh, you know see one tiger and then expect a tiger every day, or you know um, see the obvious thing that is you know it's like looks most threatening without really like delving deeper to understand you know if you look under the hood is it such a problem and it just has to do with the risk rewards of the you know environment that we evolved in but it, it kind of caused these glitches to be buried deep in our in our psyche and so we think the way to sort of repeatedly find undervalued stocks is just by finding situations where we can you know really articulate 
how the stock is mispriced and what the cognitive bias is that's sort of driving it. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of the, the hunting ground that we like to, uh, to, to prey in. So there's two ideas there, right? There's the cognitive bias that's creating the opportunity and then there's the mispricing. So let's talk about the mispricing first. How are you assessing sure. a mispricing? Are you looking for like deep value to liquidation or are you looking for uh, compound so growth? Or? I, I do DCFs on everything. So, I mean, I'll, I'll look at comparable comparables. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use multiples as a, you know, initial screen. I mean, I love looking, I love looking at, as an example, um, bombed out industries or industries that, you know, just have low multiples in general and trying to find, you know, that, that one company that's not really like the other ones that's like not you know we call that representativeness bias where investors just kind of see a group of companies that are kind of the same and uh and, and you know trade them all at you know eight to eight or ten times earnings when there's one that's that's really different um and the the example of that that i, I like to use is is apple i mean it's kind of the super popular now right because now apple trades at 30 times earnings but <laughs> back in the day everyone said hey apple's a hardware company because because the thing that you you know when you buy an apple product you buy a phone right uh but really you're buying the software you're buying the like when my mom buys an iphone she's buying it so that she can facetime us not because she cares about the you know, the bezel or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like if she could, you know, if she could get that FaceTime somewhere else, she, she, Android might have a chance with her, but you know, but they, but they don't. So we like to look for things like that, where, um, you know, there's an entire industry that's bombed out. And then, you know, we'll, we'll kind of try to wrap our mind around, you know, whether the, you know, whether it truly is a cognitive bias, because obviously, you know, things are cheap all the time for, reasons that are correct right but uh so we spend time trying to work through what, whether we think that you know like this in the case of like representativeness bias like whether we think the business is actually different than the other ones um and and then we'll do a we'll do a dcf and and you know just kind of make sure that we think it's cheap and has sort of a, a double digit irr going forward and so we just try to build a portfolio of you know, 10 to 15 stocks where we think we can, you know, it has a double digit IRR and we have reason to believe that like the market is, is mispricing it in that way because of these, because of this cognitive biases. So these tend to be undervalued businesses in the sense that you're not, you're not looking at balance sheets that have got some unlocked value. You're looking for businesses that are just being uh, misunderstood. Yeah. So I would say we will look at balance sheets we'll look at some of the part stories i will look at that but I, I for me personally i always want to see it pencil out to free cash flow at some point right because let's so a good example is uh we were long fox a few years back um and that obviously ended up well because they ended up selling the company to disney but it had a really good sum of the parts story. And the sum of the parts story was, you know, they owned a variety of assets that had, you know, some of them had had pretty good current cash flows, whether it was, um, you know, uh, you know, Fox News or, uh, you know, some of their cable channels or the movie business. Um, but they also had some other things that 
we we thought were very valuable and not captured in the valuation of the company, but also were going to generate revenues and profits down the line, we thought. So they owned, the, a good example is they owned the largest satellite TV company in India called Star India. And I mean, they were growing pretty quickly and the profitability was, was going up quickly. And so you could actually, not only was it uh, some of the parts, if you sort of added up the value of all the, the pieces of the business, but it, could, it also was going to pencil out to free cash flow in like, you know, over like the five-year timeframe. So I, I think some of the parts gets a kind of a bad rap, but it's 90% of it is because people are putting, people are just slapping multiples like 11 times EBITDA on things that aren't making any money. And I, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me, right? Like you can have a sum of the parts, but it needs to, if the, if the parts are actually worth, if the part is worth 5 billion, at some point it has to generate cash flows, right? Um, I mean, like in the case of Fox, it was a little tricky because they owned a, a big, a, a, something that was really valuable was they owned 30, I think it was 30% of Hulu. Um, and that was probably gonna generate losses for a while, but basically all of their other businesses that were sort of hidden assets were kind of on the cusp of generating, of making money. Uh, and so, we do some of the parts and things like that, but we, we always want to, you know, we always wanted to pencil out to, to free cash flow. That's kind of my, that's kind of my bias in that way that I, I like to see the actual IRR. When you're constructing the, uh, the portfolio, as you said, 10 or 15 holdings. So how do you think about sizing? How do you think about diversification? So I think the data shows that the benefit of diversification goes away pretty quickly beyond beyond 10 or so names as long as you're not buying 10 stocks in a single sector because as long as the stocks are relatively diverse in what they do and are sort of moving of course they're going to move they're going to move with the market right but um that's any portfolio, right? That's if you have 500 stocks, they're still going to move with the market to some extent. But if the if the ten of them have sort of different key factors that are driving the business, uh, the the benefit to diversification I think goes away pretty pretty quickly, just statistically. So we think that's kind of our sweet spot for you know being able to I mean especially as one person, being able to research that many companies deeply or research any more than that deeply is just, you know, non-existent, obviously. Um, so, you know, we size things, we're, we're willing to size in and just come in, we're willing to come in with a 10% position right away. I mean, as long as we're comfortable with the valuation, I mean, we're, we're obviously pretty picky about the stocks that we buy, but if we're comfortable with the story, I mean, for, for me, I'm not a huge believer in, you know, taking a toehold toehold position to like monitor the stock. I don't see why you can't just mo monitor. I mean, I get that it's real when it's real money, it's a little different, but I mean, just put it in a spreadsheet, man. It's like, you can, you can monitor it fine. I think <laughs> just, just have a, just have a watch list. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're willing to come in with 10% positions. Uh, it gets a little bit trickier. A couple of the stuff we bought in March of last year tested our, concentration limits, I should say, uh, because of how much they, they ran up. And that's, that's sort of an art more than a science, right? Of when to, 
it, it's a great problem to have, obviously to have something that goes from a 10% position to 30, but then it's like, you you know, you have to make the really hard decisions about short-term versus long-term gains, how much risk you're willing to take in one stock if it's, you know, to not impose that tax cost on your clients. And so those are, those are really difficult decisions, but, um, but yeah, we like bigger position sizes for sure. Yeah. So that's, yeah. how do you think about trimming if it's a, it's a tax and sort of uh, risk equation? I, I think, I think every situation is different in that regard. Like it's, I, I think having a hard and fast rule there is, is a little bit silly because it all depends on the price. You know, like if it goes from, I mean, we had a stock, uh, we had a stock go from $7 to $70 since March of last year. And so it's, it's, it's nice to think that you always want to take long-term gains, but when the stock is up 10 X, it just, sometimes you have to just trim the position uh, to, you know, to, to, to make it not be an unreasonable part of your portfolio and, and the valuation is a lot different, right? Like I see, and this is something I hope we get into because I hear you talk about it with Bill Brewster all the time. The, the, the whole, you know, never sell thing. I mean, I, it's, and I, I hear you, I always know that you're going to push back a little bit against it, but it's, I, I mean, honestly, it's completely, uh, a product of the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, everyone that has looked at price first, I actually got banned, not banned. Some guy blocked me on Twitter because he, he, he said, everyone post your lessons learned the past five to 10 years. And I retweeted it saying, look at this list. It's a list of all the things that you hear at the top of the bull market. It's, I never look at price. I only look at business quality. I yeah. only buy growth stocks, stay away from banks, energy and cyclicals. Uh, I mean, there's a whole list of things that you could, and it's, and it's just, it's like the, the, uh, the last 10 years has just been like a filter on, on uh, the investment world, the portfolio manager world. And the only ones that, for the most part, the only ones that have come out on the other side with any assets or willingness to discuss things on Twitter without embarrassing themselves <laughs> is people who are focused only on, only on growth and, and uh, no, yeah, growth and how much the stock has gone up in the past year, right? And quality. I think that- And know, quality, yes, yes. Quality is one that I I still struggle with a little bit because I see, um, you know, the kind of, there is this quality trades at nosebleed levels, but there's quality doesn't seem to be driven by valuation. I don't know if that's something that you, uh, to your point, that that's something that's like a more recent phenomenon or if that's something that, has been enduring, but there are a lot of guys out there who I think are very good investors who are purely focused on quality. And then they, you know, we we kind of jokingly call it quality at a reasonable price. Yeah, but, but you know, I think I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just have a little bit of trouble doing it because it's it just goes against my nature to pay any price for quality. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that we vastly prefer. I have a strong bias for low prices. But I have historically been willing to pay up a tiny bit for, for some amount of quality. Or I guess maybe I, I, try to, I try to pay up with my time searching for the next thing to find the quality. Um, we own, as an example, we own uh, a hospital company called HCA Healthcare. And the thesis there is basically that 
you know, the, the for-profit hospital business is pretty tough unless you're at a really big scale and they're at way better, bigger scale than um, just about anyone else. And they're going to, you know, they're going to earn, you know, $11 this year. And the stock was trading for the longest time at like 80 to $90 um, and then dropped to, and then dropped to 60 in, during COVID uh, in, in March. Um, and I think if you look at that business, it's, consistent four to five. I mean, it's not going to, the problem, the thing is it's not going to knock your socks off in terms of the growth. It's kind of four to 5% revenue growth, but with like a pretty long, I mean, the hospital business is insanely huge, right? So they have a really long, long runway for growth. And now you're paying, now you're paying 15, 16 times. Um, but so we're willing to pay up a little bit for things like that, but almost never more than like a market multiple. Yeah, I, I think of it sometimes as the other way around. There's stuff that deserves a discount, and you kind of got to work out whether the it's sufficiently discounted from its deserving discount. Right, 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 right. Yeah, those historically, um, I mean, our our value investing, you know, strategy has done you know a little a good bit better than like statistical than like you know just sort of naive value or whatever you want to call it, like whatever the indexes are. Um, and potentially one, one reason for that is because of we're, we tend to not traffic in the absolute bottom of the barrel in terms of quality, like, like, and, and just say like, oh, is it extra discounted? We're more of like, you know, we're probably somewhere in between quality for a reasonable price. And uh, <laughs> it's like discounted, for, discounted significantly for reasonable quality, I'd say is is uh that's a catchy acronym i'm sure that'll take off yes 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 that's i'll I'll forward that right to our marketing department which is which is also me but (laughs) so so let's let's uh let's go back to the start you're a poker player did you say you're a poker pro uh yeah i played i mean the weird thing about poker is uh it's it's a little tricky to talk to people some people about poker because literally anyone can call themselves a poker pro and sometimes it just means like an unemployed 25 year old who's like just you know living on their parents money uh but i was a pro in the sense that i was paying for all my own expenses and you know putting some money away and you know uh living well i look back on it and i definitely should have been living somewhere cheap, but I decided to live in, in New York City with my friends who were in finance. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was playing online poker only, so I could travel around. I could, it was completely foolish. And I, I mean, the problem is when you're, when you're a professional poker player, you have to kind of, you, you have to uh, have, you're very conscious of risk and reward at the poker table, but you're also very, um, you're, you're a little bit numb to sort of small losses or small expenses. I mean, you have to be, right? It's just like managing money. Uh, you know, you can't sweat every 1% move in the portfolio or the only thing you'll do is watch the portfolio all day, right? So in, in poker, it's the same thing where you can't sweat losing $100 or you can't play the game. Um, but unfortunately for a 22-year-old, that meant that I, did, I never sweated spending $20 on cab rides or living in New York City and I probably spent way more money than I should have for like the like for the you know mobility of my job I guess <laughs> what do you was play what, what do you play the uh, any PLO uh, I, or anything interesting like that uh I was playing mostly 
Hold'em. Everybody's five. playing Hold'em, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, so many more games. So there's so many more Hold'em games, especially back then. Although, you know, in like the real boom days of party poker, uh, you could get a ton of PLO games going. Uh, but I mean, I, I was always um, the the level of competition in the volatility of your results at at Hold'em or are I think better. Although I'm not an expert in, in PLO, so I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I always played 510 to kind of 2550 blinds, no limit online. So like one to $5,000 buy-in, um, depending on, you know, what games were going. And, you know, but some, sometimes you just wait around and there'd be no good games and you play for two hours. And that, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of weird like that. But I guess it's, you got to be careful. If you're a pro, you got to be careful because you're trying to make money. You don't want to be the nice thing about Hold'em is it's just like it's the entry-level game, so there's lots of people who don't right. really know what they're doing playing Hold'em, whereas once you get into PLO, it's just a little bit more exotic, and it's maybe someone who's tired yes, of Hold'em, so they, they, they you know can what get, doing. You can get the really insane gamblers, but they usually know what they're doing a little bit. You do get the really insane gamblers, but I, I do think they usually know what they're doing. PLO is a little bit more fun, I think, because it's a little bit more action, and you've always got some big drawing hands, so people stay yes. in the hands for yes. longer. Yes, it, it all the big of, hands at PLO hands, right? It, it, it actually it it reinforces. It, I guess maybe it rewards somewhat uh, the sort of natural bias towards net towards. Uh, it's actually it's action bias. It's like so you know we have a kind of a catalog for these things, obviously. Um, and in poker, it was the biggest mistake people make is action bias. It's like yeah. people just can't sit there. I think it's the same thing in investing, right? People just can't sit there and do nothing. People can't just people just can't sit there and own like some boring regional bank and watch their money grow at like eight percent a year. Yeah, uh, they want to buy the hot the hot thing, right? And I think you know, just like PLO can reward that sometimes. I think the market has been. Uh, rewarding that for the past five to 10 years that sort of you know the action bias i mean that's the nice thing about plo that you got you, you throw away the low straight or you throw away the low end of the flush because you because there's a good chance that the right, the right. top end of that is hanging out there somewhere still you, at the you, table. you can't yeah you can get you can get punished heavily if you it's it, it seems like it's rewarding your action bias because you always have a quote unquote good hand. Yeah. But what the bad players don't realize is that the everybody bar, does. the bar for a good hand is a the bar for a winning hand is a way higher. So that you, yeah, you end up getting crushed with hands that would obviously win every pull them hand. So how do you transition then from online poker to, to value uh, investing or investing? So I made enough money playing poker that I started to not be able to use it all at the table. And I mean, obviously in poker, it's super important to manage your risk. It's actually, it's all, it's equally or more important than managing risk in an investment portfolio, because at the end of the day, if you lose your bankroll, they're, they're, that's the end of the game right? That, that's it. Or if you even lose half of it and, and then you have to like drastically move down in stakes and, you know, it's, 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 and it's all your money too, right? So um, there's extra, there's, you know, there's a huge incentive to really manage your risk well. Um, so, but I had enough, I hadn't made enough money that I could kind of set some aside as like not 
not my money at the table, not my poker bankroll, and that it, then other money that I just needed to like do something with rather than sit in a bank account and earn nothing. And so I had taken some finance and economics courses in, uh, in college. So I was kind of familiar with that world a little bit. And I had a friend who in college, who's, uh, he was a uh, finance major in, in college. We actually, at MIT, we call it by numbers. So he was a course 15 major. Uh, <laughs> That's great marketing uh, I, too. That's very was, MIT. Yes, it is. Yeah, I was course two, which is mechanical engineering. Um, but he was a finance major. And so I just started talking with him about, you know, what am I going to do with this money? Like, so I think he, he sent me the intelligent investor or security analysis or something. And it immediately, immediately resonated with me because it's so similar to what you, you do in poker. So in poker, there's, the world is full of charlatans and people spouting nonsense and terrible books, terrible strategy books, just like, in, just like in investing. I don't understand how they all get published. It's like, I mean, I guess the people that are publishing them have no expertise in the field. So it's like, they don't know, really know what's, you know, and they're just trying to see if it's like something that sold last year or whatever. So you just get all these terrible books, but there was, one set of books that espoused a more rational, like kind of by the numbers, um, you know, a think kind of like a thinking man's strategy for how to play that like had like a, some theoretical frameworks around, you know, the, the mathematics of the game. Uh, and so once I found this set of books, it was actually so like Doyle uh, Brunson's like, books or something like that. So Doyle Brunson's, I wasn't a huge fan. Doyle's Brunson's, uh, Doyle's Brunson's were better than most, but not part of this um, th this publishing firm. The firm was called Two Plus Two Publishing. They actually had a they had a website. So the, the guy's name is David Sklansky. He had he he wrote like the theory of poker is like sort of like the you know security analysis of the the poker world. I'd say and. Um, you know, so it just immediately spoke to me because I was like, oh, wait, I've seen this before. Like everyone else is doing dumb, crazy stuff. And here is someone that's trying to actually make a rational strategy out of it. And all the rest of just is just obvious nonsense about, you know, uh, sell in May and go away or whatever. Uh, <laughs> swing trading. And swing trading and candles. And I just, there, I just, there was just so much obvious nonsense out there that it, it really spoke to me when there was this sort of, um, you know, real method. And so I started getting into that and looking at individual companies and trying to figure out what to invest in. Meanwhile, this was like 2007, 2008. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty strange time to try to figure out, you know, what companies are worth and, you know, make my first initial investments. Uh, I'm sure I made some, some horrible trades back then that I wish I could, could take back. Um, but uh, eventually, and the weird thing is that at the same time, the poker world was kind of crumbling, at least the online poker world, because it was, it was becoming, was that the crackdown? Was that when they started cracking yeah, down? Yeah. So, so in like 2006, uh, Senator Bill Frist, I'll never forget that guy's name. Uh, or he might be a house. He might be a house representative. It doesn't matter. Bill Frist put 
inserted this language into some other bill. I think it was just part of a larger bill that tried to ban online poker in the US essentially. And, and what it did is it, it didn't, I don't think it, it didn't make it technically illegal for individuals to play, but it made it illegal for the banks to kind of, or any US entities to be involved. And so you now had this hurdle to go through where you had to send your money to some online shell company that was probably Cyprus. based in, in Cyprus or like, I think it was Costa Rica or something. Uh, and if you were a bad, you know, unfortunately, like, you know, the bad players just weren't going to go through that. I mean, it's just like, you put a little bit of this, is, I mean, all the internet companies know this, you put a little bit of friction in the process of putting your money onto a site and it's just over time. It's just, that just makes it smaller and smaller, right? It's just like a grain of sand in the gears. So, uh, you know, what you had was the worst first, the worst players were just like, ah, screw it. I don't want to go through the hoops. And then the next level of players found themselves to be like the worst players on the site. And you know what I mean? And it's just kind of, it was like a natural, uh, it was just like a natural thing where there wasn't any more money coming in really. And so the players became better and better. And so, you know, it could still be, it could still be done as a job by good players, but it was becoming a lot less, a lot less lucrative. Um, and so I started to think about, Hey, maybe I'll, uh, you know, maybe I'll join the real world. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the investing world is just such a wider surface of interesting things to think about. And, you know, I, I was sort of comparing it to games like poker and chess. It's just, such a more multifaceted game, right? I mean, one day you're learning about, um, you know, a pharmaceutical company, and the next day you're learning about an Indian stock exchange or whatever, right? It's just an infinite number of things to to learn about. So, I, I always thought it was, you know, I just immediately thought it was more compelling than the game of poker, just long term. Um, and I think it probably also. Uh, it definitely helped my relationship with my now wife as well. And she'll, she's, uh, she let's, we'll have to see if she listens to this. This will be a test. Um, but uh, she, she tolerated, uh, she, she tolerated the poker thing, but I think me being able to travel around, not necessarily, and she couldn't, she was in med school at the time. Um, not necessarily like her family, you know, her family, like her family loved me or whatever, but um, and luckily they thought I was smart. So it wasn't like a total knock against me, but it was a little bit of a knock. It was a little bit of a knock. Like her parents both have PhDs from MIT, all, you know, her, her family all have, you know, very prestigious jobs and whatnot. So, you know, it was definitely, uh, it was, it was going to be a little bit of a headwind on, uh, you know, on, on, on the relationship. So I think it was probably also good from that aspect, but um, and you became a value I, investor, and then now you've had a decade of value. Yeah, it's even worse. Right, right, right. Little, little, little did they know that value investors were about to become the. I tell my mum I play a piano in a brothel. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. They they weren't uh, you know attuned to that whole uh, to that whole dynamic. So um, so let's get so back yeah, so, to so, the, so, building yeah. the portfolios when you when you're. Sure. You know, you say it's a the, the the interesting thing, and I agree. The interesting thing about investing versus any of the games is that the games are sort of there's only one mode of playing, whereas with investing, you're doing lots of different things all the time. But 
Yeah. You've also got this problem where you've got sort of an overwhelming number of things that you can be doing at any one period in time. So how do you kind of source what you're going to do, filter what you're going to do, validate? How, what's that process look like? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that is probably by far the hardest part of investing. Uh, it's, I guess it's probably just any job, but this is like the, the main job, the main real job I've had in life. But I mean, it's, it's so hard. Yeah, it's like, when do you, I think the hardest thing in investing and being a portfolio manager is when do you stop working on this idea and move to the next one? Like, when do you decide that you either know enough to pull the trigger, uh, the price has moved against you so much that's no longer worthwhile, or you know any or you just decide it's you're never going to be able to know enough about the name and i feel like there's there's uh, there's not really a good answer i feel like it's it's more of an art uh I, I i try i mean one thing that definitely helps is you know having this cognitive bias framework kind of tethers me to things where i, I feel like that that could be like i have at least an explanation for why that that could be the you know what's going on so that kind of points me into uh certain types of situations uh but like i but I, we have a few kind of methodologies for finding those situations um I, I think i mentioned earlier i like to look at beaten down sectors and just uh you know sort of comb through those names and uh you know just try to think of uh, try to figure out which which ones might have you know the the irrationality going on i mean i think covid was a huge curveball to, to probably everyone's investing strategy and all of a sudden i mean it was kind of like all of a sudden i i, I went from you know wanting to spend months or you know longer researching a company before i before i pulled the trigger to saying hey listen and i think this is the art part where you can't be too dogmatic in, in what you're doing in the investing world, but the prices were so insane that you, you, you had to change the rules. You had to change what you were doing. You couldn't, you couldn't wait around and say, Hey, I want to follow this company for six months because in six months, if you waited six months between June and November, you, you, you didn't invest in any of those stocks. I mean, that's probably what Buffett did. Right. He was, he, 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 and I know there's some debate about whether he should be criticized for that. I think it, it was a pretty, it was not easy to just say like, Hey, we need to drop everything and start pulling the trigger on some things a little bit faster. But, um, you know, that, that I think was a kind of a strategic decision that ended up, you know, ended up working out well, but you know, who knows, it could have, it, it, it might have not. And I think the other good thing for us was some of the stuff that was getting really beaten down was stuff that we owned. <laughs> <laughs> like it was stuff that we were kind of doubling down on that we already knew really well. Like um, uh, an, an example was, was HCA where we, we owned it and it was a pretty big position, but then the stock went from a hundred to 60 and we were like, okay, we're pretty sure that during this, this pandemic, hospitals are going to be made sure to be fine this would be like, a i don't business. know I, I i mean i think i mean you I, people were like thinking that because they were going to get overwhelmed by the covid patients and then maybe people couldn't pay their bills and if people were unemployed then like everything's going through medicaid which is medicaid which is like lower reimbursements 
Um, it turned out basically none of that was true. And they earned like, ele- they're gonna earn like $11 this year versus like where the stock was trading at 60. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we got lucky that, you know, some of the stuff that, w- I mean, lucky, right? At the time it felt terrible. <laughs> <laughs> right because you know it's like oh we're getting to double down on things that we already own but we were we were puking i mean it was it was not it was not fun to be down 30 percent or whatever it was in march or maybe it was 35 percent. i forget what the ultimate number was i mean i think at, at, at one point in march i was looking at this the other day i mean we had in, in the fundamental value strategy we had done pretty well i'm gonna pull up a chart here but it, we had done pretty well for clients and then at one point, clients had only gained like 17% net from like the inception of the strategy in 2016. <laughs> um, and it's obviously been an insane ride since then, but like it was completely terrifying to be doubling down on those on those stocks. It was yeah, you never meanwhile, at- oh, go ahead. Oh, just don't look at your compound returns at the bottom. It's just too depressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it was, yeah. And I mean, I, I made this joke on someone else's uh podcast but um you know the 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 thing this time was your stocks were were punching you in the face your investment returns and meanwhile you had little kids like throwing things at you and like running around the like you're like trying to click the mouse to make a trade while like pushing your six-year-old back being like what are you doing dad i'm like this stock we're putting in a buy order at six dollars and 77 cents when it should be trading at twenty dollars you got to go upstairs with mom right now. Meanwhile, my wife has patients. She's a doctor. So she's on virtual calls with people. You know, it was, it was, crazy. That, was a, that was a rough time. Uh, one of the things we talked about just before we came on was uh, the spread in value. Is that something you guys follow closely or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So we do follow that pretty closely. It's, it's something that we look at both to kind of just set our mind straight in terms of how we're thinking about the portfolio, even on the, even in the qualitative strategies, even in fundamental value. And it's definitely something we, uh, my partner who focuses more on the, the other quantitative strategies will we'll look at uh, even more for the quantitative, for the quantitative strategies. But I, I think if you look at the spread, the value spread, uh, which is just the spread between the valuations of the most expensive stocks and the least expensive stocks, it's it's at all time highs. I mean, it's it's basically right where it was in 1999, and we think that, and I'm sure you agree that it, it's probably the best time relative to growth quote unquote growth investors it's probably the best time ever to be a you know invested in these in these value stocks at least as far as we see the 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 go forward returns i mean it's how are you uh, assessing that that's not just price to book you're using a a variety of measures right it's a it's a it's a composition of um you know price earnings ev to ebitda ev to ebit Uh, i think price to book is in there is in there as well price uh, ev to sales might even be in there as well um, so it's, it's, you know, all of, I think all of those things kind of look the same right now in terms of, you know, how kind of off the charts they are, uh, compared to historically. What's but, the reason do you think, how did we get to this point? I think, I think it's just the old 
adage of a good thing taken too far, you know, like a, a kernel of truth taken to the uh, to the logic to the extreme. And I think in our in our letter, we grouped the the kind of growth stories in the market today in a few different buckets. One was the transcenders, which is these companies that really do have moats and really do have huge margins and huge cash flows and which have been obviously some of the best performing stocks of all time. This is Apple and Google and Facebook. And it really was true that if you just close your eyes and bought those companies when they were knocking the ball out of the park in terms of growth, in, you know, 10 years ago, you did end up with companies with huge profit margins, huge revenues, and huge investment returns. And so I think people see that and they see not only not only that, but they see the the they, they see not only the potential for that to happen, but they see the increasingly successful method of invest successful method of just buying things that look like they might be able to turn into that it doesn't matter whether the companies actually end up generating the profits five years down the road at least it hasn't mattered yet really so you know if the best strategy was to go back in 2010 and buy google it's like okay we can't do that right so or microsoft, in, or, or, microsoft or whatever yeah so like let's into 2015 let's you know, buy things that are growing that fast in our software and, you know, and, 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 and the valuations weren't that insane back then, right. Relative to their potential. Um, but nowadays, I think people have just seen that the results of that strategy has gone so well, despite the fact that most of those companies aren't generating the Google like profits that they're just, they're just piling in, you know, they're just bidding up the things that, look like they could become the thing you know it's almost like someone sees lebron james you know the, the analogy being lebron james is, is is google today and saying okay well if we can just find a kid uh, a 15 year old kid that's a really good basketball player in akron ohio and uh, who's like who's six seven it's like okay and then they're but then they're paying him like 10 million dollars a year right i'm like okay that's that's probably not, but then, you know, that guy becomes a college athlete and he's doing okay. And the next person says, oh, you've done well with that. I'll pay him $30, 30 million a year because LeBron's worth 50. And then you have the next group of, of GMs or which are the anal analogous to investors. And they're like, okay, but that 15 year old in Akron, he was once a seven year old. <laughs> and maybe we could look at some other cities that are not like Akron. You know, there's a company, there's a city in China that's kind of similar to Akron if you look at the demographics. Uh, and so let's go pay, you know, a million dollars, you know, 500,000 or a million dollars a year to this slightly taller than average, uh, you know, Chinese person in uh, Guangzhou, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the level that we're at with some of these EV, with some of these electric vehicle companies, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. I like that. <laughs> um, it's, we're, yeah. we're kind of coming up on time here, Evan. Um, if folks want to get in contact with you or follow along with what you're doing, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I think 
probably the easiest way is to join the now 3,000 Twitter followers that I have. This, this <laughs> horde of uh, 10 times the size of the uh, uh, the, the Spartan army. It was Spartan That's army, right. it was the 300. Yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Evan Tyndall. Or you could uh, go to our website, which is Capital dot com slash blog or there's i occasionally post things under uh cio corner which is um where my business partner allows me to post things that aren't aren't uh overseen by him for polish and uh you know consistency <laughs> or you Evan, can follow our corporate our corporate twitter which has way less followers what's your what's your corporate twitter uh i think it's at byron capital it should be if it's not that's a mistake on our part but just just search byron capital on twitter and you'll find it i'm sure Evan Tyndall by Ream Capital. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ryan. <laughs>